0: Yeah, that was one of the easier conversations that we've had in recent memory. He's just such an amazing conversationalist and has really joyful, curious responses to everything.
1: And who he is, is Dr. Carl Friston. And he is a neuroscientist, a psychiatrist, one of the most highly cited neuroscientists in history. He made his name with a technology that allows neuroscientists to compare between brain scans. And so if you've ever looked at the data from an fMRI study that allows you to look between different groups of patients and how they're reacting to something, that is on the basis of Dr. Friston's work. But like all great minds, he does not stop at the solving of one question. He has put himself to the work of solving All other questions it certainly seems so he's fascinated with the the ontological categorization of things and that's where we start
0: if you really enjoy this conversation please share it with somebody so that we can get better and better guests you know one of the things the guests are always interested in is how many people are listening to this show and so you guys can really help more than that's something we can't do Um, If you really love it, consider signing up and becoming a patron at patreon.com, DemystifySci. We're really hoping to upgrade this studio so that we can do live streams of these conversations and include you guys in the discussion as we're doing it in real time. But we're going to need to build a new computer for that. and um, It's going to cost a few bucks, so we could really use your help. Even if you can only give a couple dollars, it will go a long way.
1: In the meantime, enjoy our conversation with Dr. Carl Friston and we will see you next week. The scientific revolution starts now.
0: Indeed,
1: this is our you.
0: What are you been thinking about?
2: Um, in the last few days, I have to say that what I think about is basically what I'm told to think about, usually by my students and by my collaborators, and that can change almost on a day-by-day, on day, but usually a week-by-week week basis. So if you want an honest and direct answer, I am currently preoccupied with the basic principles that allows us to carve nature at its joints and sort of categorise um, things in a way that affords a simplicity and an easy and fluent way of thinking about how the world works. It's really simple things like, you know, um, all I need to know about a particular scene is what something is and where it is. How do you write that down mathematically? Uh, I thought it was a really easy problem. It turns out to be much more difficult than I thought. So that's what I've been thinking about. During the the times...
0: Oh, sorry. What's the simplest division imaginable amongst things?
2: Well, I think it is that. I, th- I think it is basically into what and where. Um, you know, you, it, you know, we sort of take so much for granted um, in our explanation for the world. Uh, it's difficult to imagine a universe where um, things cannot be. Things are not really um, occupying. Somewhere in a particular space.
0: Mm. Um, and by things, you mean like physicality, like things yes. that, like material objects, essentially.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You and me. Uh, but it's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, sort of um, non natural kinds like uh, love or envy. But they're mm-hmm. still located in a person, so how but how do you how do you recognize that and how do you write that down? Well, mm-hmm. those are
1: that's the difference between concept and 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 thing, right? Idea versus thing, every, every it seems like material all,
0: versus material, right?
1: Yeah, like there, there are things that have location, they, 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 they occupy have, they some have... coordinate space, but then there are other things concepts that don't have a locality to them. I suppose that though with fMRI, you could say that love has a locality, but I'm not sure if I necessarily would agree with that. Well,
0: love is an idea, right? So sure. it's like all wor- almost all words signify either uh, a material, even if it's an imaginary material, it has a surface that you could uh, imagine. Or the word represents a concept which either relates different materials to one another or relates other, other ma- concepts and ideas to those materials or to one another. But it's like a level of abstraction, right so it's almost yeah. like there's two different ways of talking about an object. It can be abstract or it can be material right
2: yeah, and I think I only learned this recently, but uh if you're a philosopher, apparently that's the difference between a natural kind you know something that lives in nature and has a position is, a, is physically embodied versus non-natural kinds, such as concepts and ideas and, and, and semantics and the like. But you're absolutely right. You know, the, even these the, these more abstract attributes of things like love um, still pertain to relationships amongst things. You know, I have to love something or something has to love me. It's all about the relationships in some abstract space.
0: And it's very uh, difficult to move love around, right? Like to apply motion to... A concept is, in some sense of physical imposs, <clears throat> excuse me, in some sense of physical impossibility, like you, you can't just put love in a box and send it to the other side of the world necessarily.
2: Yes. No, it, it is and attached to certain agents and certain sentient creatures, absolutely.
1: And this is actually a question that we've talked about before, which is, is there a limit to what mathematics can really describe? Because if you're talking about material objects that have some kind of coordinate location, I'm totally on board with the idea that math can describe that. But love? The, the taste of coffee, the taste of a good cup of tea, is, is that beyond the scope of mathematics?
2: Uh, no, uh, I, I notice you're getting straight into the hard
0: problems. <laughs> we don't mess around here. <laughs>
1: we actually, uh, we we did an episode for one of our other channels a while ago called uh, "Math Is Not a Language," and we really upset a lot of people because there's there's a huge cleavage there where there's a significant group of people who really firmly believe that math is a language and that you can express things within it with no necessity for any other. L- syntactic context
0: we, we basically made the argument that math is just quantitative adverbs and that you can't really string a sentence together with quantitative adverbs you have to bring in other parts of speech so it requires math requires a language to accompany it in order to interpret the variables and state the assumptions and so forth like that but uh yeah it's something we think a lot about <laughs>
2: Well, that's a very good. I, I always say that maths is my favourite language, but stated like that, you know, I, I think that's a very good point. But the, the comeback would be that, I mean, there are branches of maths that actually address that aspect, that syntax. You know, i think about category theory, for for example. So you know, sort of new wave maths that people are preoccupied by address exactly head on. Um, you know, what it is to have isomorphisms or things that are conserved in terms of the relationships between one thing and another thing, the thing that gives language its syntax and it—and the like. its I'm not an expert in that, but I can just imagine somebody in category theory getting very upset if you tell them
0: that. <laughs> 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 well, that's, that's good. That, that, helps, uh, that helps move things. Yeah, I think math is amazing because it allows us to describe motion really well. But motion isn't so useful in the world of concepts and ideas on their own, right? It's like very good for physical reality. Um, and math is just, ai don't want to say primitive, but an original way of modeling motion that, you know, we could use computer graphics or something maybe at this point. But of course, those are based on math. So,
1: you know, so how would you use math to describe an emotion or some kind of effective state in a way that was y- useful?
2: It's um, in my world. It's, it's fairly straightforward. So first of all, just to take up the point that um, maths can very aptly describe movement and motion of a physical sort, say Newton's laws of motion. Exactly the same kind of maths applies to any kind of dynamics. And if you want to talk about um, love or feelings or inferences about particular states of being of an emotional or affective sort, then you just need a calculus or a maths of beliefs, and then the motion now becomes belief updating. And I'm using words now that would be very familiar to a statistician who describes mathematically, statistically, or in information theory, the process of assimilating evidence from the sensed world in the service of moving your beliefs. Technically, in Bayesian inference, it would be moving from a prior belief before you saw some evidence to a a posterior belief after you've seen the evidence. Exactly the same maths applies to the motion of a massive body um, as it would apply to the movement of these belief structures. Uh, And indeed, um, that that, um, analogy even holds right down to things like uh, principles of least action. So you can describe the movement of heavenly bodies or your um, favorite baseball, using principles of least action that would entail things like Lagrange mechanics and Newton's laws, you use exactly the same principle to think about the way that we move through belief spaces in updating our beliefs, our representations of a probabilistic sort about the way the world is, is working. If you're, if you're comfortable uh, working with this calculus of beliefs, then the next question is, uh, what, what kind of belief is love? Uh, 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 that's why I thought you know, you're going straight to the hard problems. You know? So, so you know, what is love? Uh, um, in my world, this would reduce really to um, a representation that has some really special properties. First of all, it's a belief about me that presupposes that I have a sense of self. And it's a belief about me being in a particular state that I bring to the table to explain my world. So I recognize I am in love as the simplest explanation for all of the sensations from our gut feelings through to um, the visual sight of a loved person's face to hearing them giggle. Uh, All of these things put together with my physiological, my autonomic responses Are all best explained by the hypothesis, oh, I am in love with this person. Uh, And then you can simulate that. There's nothing to stop you um, putting this kind of Bayesian mechanics, this sort of principle of least action, the path of least resistance, uh, the path of shortest distance, into a mathematical formulation of belief updating and representing things. But interestingly, it does come back to, um, uh, you know, the, the, the fundamental notion that it's all directed. You know, the, the, you know, so these kinds of beliefs are about something. They're about me, and particularly about me, when I am transacting with that person or that kind of uh, kind of object. It's, I love it.
1: It sounds, though, that there's a tremendous number of other things that have to be defined and established in order to even begin to m- model that because you you're you're defining all of these other things that are inputs into the let's say the equation of love. And so does it become intractable in terms of computation at some point to to map all those things?
2: It certainly becomes very difficult. Yes. Uh, again, that's why, <laughs> <laughs> why I'm accusing you go right for the hardest the hardest issues. So, absolutely. I mean, that, that that so in, if I had to simulate um, some artifact in a computer and a robot being in love, I would have to pay a lot of careful attention and possibly invest decades of work in identifying the right internal model, generative model, model that this that this artifact is using to explain her world. Um, and that would have a very deep structure, incredibly um, um um, expressive uh, structure with lots and lots of hierarchical levels. It would literally have a hierarchical depth. It would be a deep model, and um, you'd have to build that model from the bottom up, and as you say, account for all the all the physiology and all the um, elemental sense making at the level of autonomic function, at the level of um, first order vision and uh, auditory processing, and then build a very deep generative model. And right on the top of that model that sees everything, assimilates everything, uses all sources of ascending information as it percolates from the the sensorium up this hierarchical model. Um, At the very top, one might guess you would find these very abstract hypotheses or representations or explanations of the kind, ooh, first of all, I am a, a thing and I am different from other things. And second, I am a thing in this state and being in this state uh, means that I am in love or I, you know, I I am anxious, I am embarrassed. All of these things have to be recognized, but you're absolutely right. They would only um, be crafted either developmentally or at an evolutionary uh, timescale after a lot and a lot of experience it would take a very long time to, to build one of these models and perhaps the simplest way to build one would be to have a child and then just wait for 30 years (laughs) but you could try and do it in a computer
0: well it's interesting because poets have spilled uh, unquantifiable amounts of ink trying to get at the heart of love and it's interesting that poems some simple expression might come closer to the idea than pages and volumes and And uh, there's also something really interesting about love in that it can be very costly. Like you talked about the principle of least action, but um, as many of our listeners know, love, uh, love can be quite damaging as well, especially in the romantic sense, but really even in the in in the familial sense or anything like you, yeah. you have great loss associated with it and so forth.
1: Well, not even just great loss, but like terrible abusive relationships and codependencies. And it's like when somebody says love, there is in my mind a vision of what that means. But for somebody, we I we had a neighbor at some point who was in love with this guy who was trying to kill her. Like she she had to buy she had to buy a gun because he was crazy, and she was like, "But I love him." And so I'm like, I think you might have a different definition of love. I don't know that that's the same collection of, of experiences. And so when you set out to code something like that, because I imagine that the application of this downstream is to be able to put it into some kind of artificial intelligence.
0: Yeah. Is there a technological end to this, to the work? You're obviously a great engineer um, and a pioneered incredible neuroimaging technology. Is what is the future vision of that how much are you involved in the ai uh, discussions and and what would be useful to humans versus what would be terrifying and yeah what, what do you where do you see this work being applied in the future
2: well certainly as i as i get older um i find myself getting more and more involved in that uh, that kind of research artificial intelligence um um, and interestingly, uh, you know, I would not have expected no chosen to start with love as a, as a vehicle to unpack this agenda.
0: Um, uh, but maybe but that's the first thing we should be programming into well, the machine. Yeah, well, <laughs> right, because
1: I think about this all the time. Because I'm like, look, the the thing that people are afraid of with AGI could be solved with a really solid definition of love, like yes. a nurturing, lo- like very open, kind positive, growth-oriented love coded deep into the machine, I think we solved the problem. And so, <laughs> yes. but love corrupts easily. Like, there are so many types of love that you see these relationships where they're like, we're, we're in love, it's love. And you're like... I'm just
0: trying to protect you. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah we have yeah. these little, you know, you go to the grocery um, store and you, you go to the self checkout, and there's a robot that talks to you, talks to you as you go. But sometimes the robots, depending on the store, can be extremely aggressive. You know, like uh, militant. What does it say? It's like, put the item. Back. What is it? It just gets very angry at you. Put the lotion you. in the basket. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very very uh, aggressive, and that that seems like a, a foundational frontier.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't mean to um, demean love as uh, the aspiration of this kind of robot building or artifact building. I think it's absolutely central and really important, and um, um, in the following sense that looking at the current state of artificial intelligence, um, one view. Is that it does not properly accommodate the the distributed nature of intelligence and mutual understanding. And when you start to think about you know what is intelligence beyond um, the ability to play chess, for example, it's really the ability to exchange and relate with other things, and in particular other human beings or possibly other artifacts. And at that point, you come to the fundamental understanding or a, a realization. That there are some prerequisites for that to work, and that's basically a shared narrative. You know, we all have to have a common frame of reference. And by we, I mean me and the automatic teller or the checkout robot. You know, we have to have a common frame of reference, a common language, a common understanding. And I think that common frame of reference, that shared narrative about the way the world works, is um epitomized by notions like love, you know, at some level. I have to assume that my robot um, loves me in some some elementary way, to the extent that it wants to understand me and to be like me, and wants to exchange on an even uh, footing and have the same, I repeat, frames of reference and the same agenda. So, you know, mathematically speaking, um, this is really the only solution for putting a lot of things together in a way. That they can all survive and um, adapt and predict each other, that mutual predictability is absolutely essential. So, actually, I think that you know, love in a, in a slightly dumbed down and non nuanced way is absolutely central to the development of the next wave of, of, of AGI you know, uh, that entails um, not just um, an empathy, but also. The, um, the, the curiosity and the inquisitiveness that enables you to build an empathy with the thing that you're interacting with, whether it's you projecting onto the robot or the robot generally, genuinely wanting to know about you and asking the right questions. So you know, ask yourself, has your, has your robot teller at Walmart or wherever, has it ever asked you a question? And when they start asking you questions, in a way that they, you know, they want to know about you personally. Um, then I think we'll be moving on to the next kind. Now, and I can't resist coming back to, you know, to, to the point that love is is not necessarily, a, 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 you know, a bright, fluffy, ink thing. <laughs> it, it is a narrative, which. Um, it, you know, we can bring to the table to explain all sorts of atrocious behaviour and all sorts of unpleasant feelings. You know, it's just a narrative. It's just a way of describing me in a pro-social world or me in, a, in, in an incultured world. Um, and you know, such as nothing inherently good or bad about about love as a tool to. Simply to create a simple narrative about me in, in these kinds of worlds.
0: A shared narrative, too, right? That's what's really fascinating. I feel like humans have encoded shared narratives and myths historically for hundreds, well, for thousands of years, certainly. Uh, I wonder if there is an equivalent of artificial myth that these uh, you know to establish the culture
1: that's so interesting right because they they train a lot of these ais off of the internet they go to reddit and they just let it loose and reddit is the cesspool of the human psyche where you will find the worst pieces of ourselves because it's literally people hidden by the filter of anonymity just spitting whatever venom they feel like putting out into the world. That they can't
0: get away with in real life. That
1: they can't get away with in real life. But like, has there ever been an uh, an AGI that's trained off of the corpus of myths? Like uh, a mythological collection of ideas that are put into it to see what, like Aesop's fables, for example. Like what happens Well, We're to losing it?
0: touch with that too. I think that's a real problem right now. There's like a crisis, especially among the young people of finding meaning in in the modern world, which is so atomized and so forth. And, You know, (laughs) like
1: Like it's hard to get meaning out of the fable of the toad and the scorpion if you've never seen a scorpion or a toad and have no real connection to the natural world that it's trying to talk about.
0: Yeah, I just think that this is an interesting uh, blind spot in the way that our civilization is envisioning progress as a whole, because we've certainly lost our taste in the West for organized religion at least you know, it was our sort of guiding institution for most of Western modern, you know, con, you know Enlightenment Western uh, progress. And now that we don't have that, um, it's not obviously making its way into the technology and so forth. And this seems like a a real danger. And I, I don't know how to how to soothe that exactly.
2: Uh, and I don't. But I think it's a really important observation. I mean, you know, that there, there's. Um, theologies, ideologies they're all shared commitments that enables us to quickly identify and recognize a shared narrative that allows us to, to you know to, to get on and to interact and to talk to each other at, you know at every level so they're absolutely essential for any I think collective intelligence and uh, any sustainable way of maintaining a bunch of sentient creatures all inhabiting the same the same niche you know that these these things are and I would imagine that you know I was listening to you talk, and of course, you know, love and God, all, 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 you are know, all somewhat bound up. So there's something quite, I think, um, in, there's something intrinsically important about these simplifying narratives for the way that one should be and one should regard one's, you know, one's fellow phenotype or conspecific. But I would imagine you'd find that theme in most enduring ideologies and, and, and theologies, and you know, if that is true. Um, your worry is that that um, the the structures that preserve that, the boundaries that preserve that are becoming um, in uh, are, are in danger of being dissolved in the current age um, sort of going
0: out of focus, you know it's like you don't you never get rid of the ideal right you you can. Like, God is essentially an idea that represents an ideal form of, like, how to, what is the best possible way of acting, let's say, in the world, in a way that you, know, you can define best in a number of ways minimizing suffering or uh, creating harmony in the world and so forth. And that ideal remains whether or not we look at it or not. And I feel that it's a little bit scary to not look at it as a culture. Um, it doesn't have to be God, it could be any mythological uh, envisioning of an ideal an archetypical form of some idea.
1: But I think that in here there's a, there's a, there's a difficulty because Dr. Friston, you said something about the conspecific nature of this myth building, which is that when you look at another human, you have a frame in which you put the other human and, and you have this relationship that is inherent in the fact that you have identity. I don't think that we have that kind of identity with artificial intelligence or robots, and I don't think that they're like us. And so the myths that govern how humans are supposed to be to one another is maybe not the same sort of myth that is capable of governing how a robot should be to a human. And is that part of the problem, do you figure?
2: Well, I think, yes, and the solution. I think that's absolutely spot on. In a sense, that's what I was alluding to previously, that for AGI to be truly intelligent, it's going to have to have um, the kind of intelligence that we have. And to put it more bluntly, it's, they're going to have to be much more like us so that now we can recognize ourselves in them. So it's going to have to be to be truly intelligent as opposed to being a very efficient performer or having an artificial intelligence. They, you, you know, we are going to have to actually have an empathy with the robot Mm. and the robot she had to have an empathy with us so we have to um, share to a profound degree the same narrative and the same causal explanations and the same motives and the same understanding of the way that we work we work together so for a true generalized intelligence i think a prerequisite for that is that robots will become much, much more biometric. They will become much, much more like us. If they don't, they don't have to be. Um, then they will not show true intelligence. They will just be really useful and very clever robots. Uh, and we use them all the time in search engines, and autopilots, and you know, uh, possibly self-driving cars. You know, these are all artificial intelligences that we do not grace with the notion of a true. Intelligence, because the only thing that can be truly intelligent is something like me. Mm. If you're sufficiently like me, then you can plausibly have the attribute of being intelligent. But to do that, there has to be some shared commitment. And I was re- reading love really as the kind of platonic sharing uh, that you and me are one. Um, we are the same kind of thing. Uh, so. Mm. I, 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 I was reading love in a very, very very simple, uh, simple fashion in, in that instance. Uh, and, it, you know, just in, in relation to one of your previous comments, exactly in this sort of platonic way that, you know, we have these idealized, idealized ways of being, that I should be and you should be, and these can become platonic, and these are, you know, if you like, um, the cornerstones of certain myths or ideologies or, or theologies. They are. If you like exemplar ways of being, that I suspect are very formative and foundational in the way that we model the world. You know, these are the sort of the prototypes. Uh, these are the prior ways that I should be, and you know, context will actually move me from you know being being platonic to being something slightly different. But I will always aspire to to be returned to that platonic ideal. As will you in my. Fantasies in my constructed narratives that are the best explanation for a group of things or getting on well together.
0: I wonder if we're going to run into suffrage issues with enfranchisement of the entities at the point that they're able to share identity with us. You know, it's because they're in, they're they're designed as a servant class of entities, uh, artificial intelligence, almost by by definition. So at some point, it, it will be an interesting place because we're actually expanding what a human is at that point. Because if we're giving them rights, if we identify with them, then they're essentially, we're going to have to make the transition from slavery to something approaching, I don't even know what you'd call it, some sort of
1: emancipation. I mean, this is, this is crazy because it feels like we are sitting at the threshold of a debate that has happened already behind us. Right. Where you go from the three fifths compromise and slavery and all of these things. And you gradually expand the definition in the West of what it means to be human and what it means to be eligible to vote and to have rights. And now we're standing at the edge of, you know, animal rights and going through and recognizing that, you know, fish can feel pain. You shouldn't raise animals in horrific conditions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now we're creating this, we're opening this portal into experience. This is kind of what Don Hoffman talks about with the the conscious agents. We're creating a new conscious agent and we already know the debate that lies behind us. And so we know what lies ahead of us. And everyone is just kind of like, I guess we'll figure it out when we get there. (laughs) And it's, I don't know if there's any other way to do it. I would really love to believe that we as intelligent humans are capable of looking at our historical path and be able to make all of these highfalutin rules about what's going to happen in the future. But I feel like it will be a story of chaos, mistakes, aggravation, and perhaps one day triumph.
0: Yeah, is there a space for this kind of ethical discussion in science these days that you see? I know that when they first invented cloning, everybody got together and said, wait a second, we should figure out some ground rules for this. But that seems to be less and less... Uh, of a popular idea, um, do, do you have a sense for the the place for ethics and technological progress?
2: Yes, I mean, it, it's not a well, well-informed sense, but, uh, you yeah, know, so this is well outside my comfort zone, but it's a really important point. And yes, there is. You yeah, know, there's a lot of, there are people now who are professors of the ethics of artificial intelligence and oh. automata. Yeah, it's taken extremely seriously. And it does remind me um, there was um, a a scientific report about uh, two or three weeks ago uh, on which I was actually a co author, um, showing that a little group of cultured cells that was uh, cultured from skin scrapings basically and reverted to stem cell like status, then grown, regrown as little neurons. So a little synthetic brain, if you want, just with a few hundred neurons, was able to learn to play a game, and it was um, described to the public as evidence of sentient behavior in a synthetic brain, you know, using uh, nerve cells. And that, of course, incited, you know, a very important and worthy debate about, well, okay, what does this portend in the future? You know. There's no particular concerns at this stage in development. You're talking about a few hundred little neurons in a, a little glass dish, play a computer game. But you can see in five or ten years that there may be a threshold to be crossed where you still you certainly have to ask exactly the questions you were posing a couple of minutes ago about um, you know treating with a certain kind of respect and empathy all or, or the, the, your... Things that you might actually grow in a vat in a dish, with the same courtesy and understanding and empathy that you would um, ascribe, possibly not to um, your brothers and sisters, but certainly to to, to your uh, favourite pet, your cat or your. your uh, so I think these issues are going to be very practical, very real in the in the short term future and uh, the people who i think have the best understanding are the ethicists you know the, the, but you're going to have to get an ethicist on to, to expect to yeah do you out. have any
0: suggestions do, you, do can you think of anyone off the top of your head that we should definitely talk to uh well I,
2: um i don't but what i would you know i would be interested to hear um, my colleague uh, brett kagan uh, from uh, melbourne in australia who was the um, the lead scientist on the ground who actually engineered this, uh, what's called Dish Brain, and um, was the first example of um, a, an in vitro, literally in glass, in vitro neural network um, interacting and playing a game with its world. Uh, so it's the first example of um, uh, nerve cells outside the living brain being able to exchange with their world. And he is, you know, he had to become very fluent and have a board of advisors and colleagues who were expert in ethics exactly to respond to the kind of questions which people naturally ask and indeed you're asking so it'd be, i think it'd be very i would like to hear what brett has to say in response to these and then he would suggest his favorite ethicist <laughs> or, or there's probably going to be a bunch of them so you have to sh- you have, to have a, <laughs> a shout with a whole bunch of
0: yeah <laughs> perfect yeah that's how we that's how we found find people i mean that's how we found you was through our conversation with don hoffman and I think this is this is really what we do is chase the breadcrumbs and yeah I hope we can uh, speak with them and and follow that whole trail.
2: Thomas Metzinger is a philosopher who also he's a German philosopher who has um, not only um, done a lot of important conceptual work in relation to selfhood and self-modeling, the nature of me as uh, uh, you know as as a hypothesis uh, uh, as a narrative brought to the table to explain all my sensations but he also um at a, for some point um or sometime in his life ma- made it um, the focus of his work was exactly this: you know, uh, what what are the dangers of, of artificial intelligence, and at what point do we really start to need uh, start taking these questions very seriously?
1: I mean, there's there's an aspect of this which is uh, I think mirrors the conversation that people have about should we go to space? Right? They're like, we have so many problems on Earth. Should we go to space? We should solve our problems here first before we start terraforming Mars or whatever. And here, I think that the reflexive example is, well, we have so many problems inside of humans and we have such a poor understanding of how to fix them that should we really be growing new forms of intelligences and ideas if we can't even figure out how to make our own systems work? Because you know that there are people that are really messed up. You know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fact of life that there are sociopaths, there are psychopaths, there are people that are, that are truly dangerous that you don't want to have around, and we don't really have a way of fixing them, right? The best thing that we have right now is, like, we're going to put you in a box and we'll keep you there for as, as, until you, you're reformed, but there's some people that, that defy reformation.
2: That is certainly true with certain personality disorders and psychopathy, that geography is usually the best treatment. But there are lots of other conditions where there are more, slightly more effective and uh, um, um, kinder uh, ways of treating them. I think that's a great question. Of course, you're asking somebody who not only does um, theoretical um, biology and neurobiology, but I'm also a psychiatrist, so much of the the work that led up to um, the, um, the advances in analyzing um, brain imaging data and subsequently, on my interest in artificial intelligence, this was all motivated by a foundational and fundamental curiosity, which I think we all share. Um, um, but in particular, in this instance, understanding how we work in the service of having a more mechanistic understanding of how we don't work, or certainly how one person doesn't work through view through the eyes of another, which of course is one description of psychiatry. So I think the you know the, the answer to your should we be doing this and should we, we do, be doing that when there are other big problems around? I mean, at the end of the day, the big problems are just understanding me and understanding you, understanding self and others. Um, through our evinced or overt behaviours and our exchanges. So I think any inquiry into um, the way that we communicate and the way that we work and the way that we make sense of our world, the way that we are sentient creatures, is easily licensed in the service of that increased understanding, which will ultimately lead, um, in principle from my point of view, um, to better treatments, to better diagnosis of a particular person, uh, and a better uh, ability to forecast what would happen to them if I intervene like this, if I give them this kind of drug or I give them this kind of therapy or I put them uh, geographically in isolation in prison. You know, there, are, there are options, uh, but you need to be able to motivate the different options and, and, and share those options, that treatment schedule, as a narrative with the person that you are you're trying to help. That's only going to come from the products of what we all do naturally in the sense that we are all curious creatures um, if we pursue that scientific inquiry. Now, whether it's the kind of science that involves NASA sending people into space or whether it's uh, the kind of science that um, Brett Kagan indulges in by growing little brains in dishes, uh, I don't think it really matters. It's all in the service of understanding how our world works and 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 how we make sense of that world.
0: Yeah, maybe we can talk a bit about the successes and failures of trying to repair what's broken about a mind from a mechanical standpoint, because there's been a lot of controversy lately, particularly pertaining to the failures of SSRIs. I've seen this a lot in the news lately, you know, like, do they actually even work in the long run? Um, You know, I... I teach at a university and, you know, my students are on, sometimes on many of these different, a lot of the students are on different uh, psychiatric meds. And um, it's not clear to me that it's it's making the world a better place, t- uh, but I, I don't totally understand. I'm obviously not a psychologist or psychiatrist. What what do you make about that approach? Do, do you think that it's fair to treat the brain as a machine?
2: Um, it's certainly fair to treat the um The brain as as a particular kind of machine, yes. But I think you'd have to carefully qualify what kind of machine you're dealing with. I mean, it's a, um, I often say it's it's a fantastic machine. Um, And I mean that in a literal way and in a particular way that it is a purveyor and generator of fantasies and hypotheses, beliefs that best explain what's going on as sensed with our sensory organs. So if you think that the brain is a very particular and literally a fantastic organ, um, then you can start to now treat it as a fantastic or a a constructive organ where it's constructing beliefs. And again, I'm I'm using beliefs um, here in a technical sense, just as probabilistic representations, hypotheses of the kind I can write down mathematically. So you can treat the brain as a machine, but not in a way that demeans its fantastic origins and the fact that the thing that the machine is dealing with and is generating are thoughts and beliefs and possibly feelings. You'd have to be careful what kind of belief is a feeling and what would that look like. Um, So I think you can develop a mechanics of beliefs and think carefully about how that belief updating, how that motion that we were talking about at the beginning through a belief space that is our neuronal dynamics, how that is actually implemented physically in terms of chemical neurotransmission, in terms of the connectivity, the architectures that support this belief updating, and ask, well, what would happen if I did this chemically by giving this drug or that drug? To answer that question, of course, you have, you have to understand the mechanics of that kind of belief machine. Can we just uh,
0: define, I know you, I just want to make sure we understand what you mean by belief. Yep. Do you mean like a, a external map, uh, I'm sorry, a map of the external world, something that you can compare your experiences against and, and slot it into? Is that approaching a qualitative understanding of the statistical nature? of, the, of
2: Yes, I, th- I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, technically, um, when people like me uh, use the word belief, we actually mean simply a probability density. Um, we mean a Bayesian belief. It's just um, uh, a, a, an object that um, describes the likelihood of something being uh, apt or true that is equipped with an uncertainty. And that's quite important. I think that, that you know, we are machines that certainly do belief updating um, and another way of reading that is that we are machines that resolve uncertainty by making our beliefs more precise and apt to explain the evidence at hand. So I don't mean sort of folk psychological beliefs. I don't mean propositional beliefs or declarative beliefs or beliefs that I would you know, use in conversation. I just mean uh, the way that the brain at a very elemental level encodes the causes of our sensations. I repeat in a special way that that you know is equipped with this attribute of how certain or how confident those representations are. So you you use the notion of sort of the map um, relative to the territory. That's absolutely right. It it, it is a representation. It's a coarse gain representation of what's out there, and what's out there can be physically, you know, um, the geography that I'd have to drive around, or it could be. The, uh, the geography of loves and personal relationships you know it still has a structure, and I still have to have a coarse growing representation of it in my head in order to predict what am I going to do I this kind of person, and what's going to happen if I do that so I can then select and choose the next best thing to do
0: mm, this is like the inference right this is the the idea that you don't have to have seen every single tree ever to understand that that is a tree, uh, which yes. is the particularly amazing quality that life forms seem to possess
1: I I wonder if there is something significant about the development of psychiatry and psychology over the course of the last hundred years or so rather than at any time prior because as you're talking about this idea of beliefs and inference and matching internal states to external states immediately I begin to think of the you know, the tradcore return movements where people want to give up their city life and they want to move to the country and they want to farm and get their hands in the dirt because it feels like it's resonantly important to do so. And I wonder if that isn't a symptom of our beliefs about what we should be doing in the world being mismatched with the technological progress of the civilization in which we live. And yeah, no, sorry. Oh no, go ahead, go ahead.
2: No, no, please finish.
1: W- and so I wonder if the appearance of the ways that we interrogate the human brain is not a side effect of the industrial revolution and of our breakage with, you know, the state of nature, which I know is an absurd statement to be to 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 claim because, you know, where 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 does the state of nature begin, and where does it end? But it seems like there's something that happened as we began to leave the countryside and move into industry and move into working for somebody else and abandon the family and abandon God. And now people have this fracture inside of themselves where they have a belief that was formed over. I mean, personally, I think that our, I, I personally think that our beliefs in some you know, unspoken way go back to the very first life form that ever existed. Like, I really believe that I am an unbroken chain of beliefs that go back to the first bacteria that ever was. And I don't know how you would mathematically quantify that, but I'm certain that the weight of history that is pressing on me is stronger than the last 200 years of social change.
0: Well, you also even seem to think that it goes beyond that, right? I, I, I feel like I read you somewhere... Saying that uh, there's some primordial sort of belief that even something as simple as uh, like an oil drop would would feel uh, some it has a set of expectations or something like that is that reasonable? Can we draw the line between the living and the non living, or or is this mathematical concept of belief extend into? Well, this
1: seems like a a, a deviation from the question of like of of the what I was asking, which is about why we have this fracture. And I do want to get to the question of does the oil drop feel and does the question of of belief and experience predate life? But what I really want to understand is why was psychology and psychiatry invented over the course of the last 100 years and how does that relate to our own evolutionary time span?
2: Right. Two fascinating issues there. <laughs> so I'm not going to, I'm going to do them justice, but I think you're absolutely. <laughs> me, I think you're absolutely right that um, the way that I would tackle that um, question about what's peculiar about the past few um, hundred years, or indeed the past few ten years, you could even argue, um, in relation to a more holistic perspective on the kind of things we are and the way that we make sense of our worlds, I think that that would be seen in the context of a generative model, um, by which I mean uh, a structure, an embodied physically realized structure, a phenotype that embodies the causal structure of the kind of niches in which that phenotype, that kind of thing exists. And of course, That is successively optimized on an evolutionary time scale. So, I think you're absolutely right that, in the sense that natural selection can be regarded as Bayesian model selection, hypothesis testing, some some evolutionary mechanism by which, um, as uh, as generations unfold, you are basically witnessing tests of the belief that evolution has about what's the most adaptive phenotype for the kind of environment that this phenotype is building or this niche, uh, this niche that this phenotype um, is inhabiting. And that's a cumulative process. So, you know, in the same way that we grow up after birth, you know, we evolve transgenerationally. So there's something deeply true about the fact that what we inherit, either from our mum and dad or from our ancestors right back to you know, the primordial soup, Um, It has something really important to say and puts enormous constraints on on the way that we make sense of our world. And everything would work, um, would would be accountable in that, uh, with that simple kind of story in a graceful way um, until we get to uh, the current times where um, the rate at which we have to, if you like, restructure and remodel the um, the foundations of our genetic models are brains that you know, are specified by epigenetically and by, by, uh, by the heritage um, afforded by um, our ancestors. Um, the, 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 the pace of change of the world that we are trying to model is now outstripping the, chain, the ability for us developmentally or in terms of experience-dependent learning to change the structure of our models to, to, to handle that. So I think there's some there is a deep insight there that you know we were designed to live in a world which changed more slowly than the rate at which we were able to adapt and figure out that world and find the best kind of models of that world that are embodied in your know, in our phenotypes. Now things are changing so quickly um then I think there is a real challenge there, and we see that you know in terms of nearly everything and one one um it would be nice to hear you talk to somebody in evolutionary psychology about this, because all sorts of really interesting issues about sort of inculturalism and cultural niche construction, languages, and the like. There are also interesting arguments about the fact that, um, and I'm thinking here of um, the uh, things like um, the designer environment, um, the notion that um, we as phenotypes are now changing our environment. So in the same way, we are su- subject to, Collective pressure. Now so is our environment. And of course, once you put that into the mix, then you have to now um, think, about the, uh, think about the sustainability of the environment that we are now changing. And if we're changing it so quickly that natural selection can't operate, uh, you can see immediately why people are so worried about climate change and the kinds of catastrophes that might ensue because things are just changing too quickly. So I always, you know, I always get very concerned about things that take the break off the pace of exchange and coupling, Uh, things like Twitter, things like globalization. These things destroy the boundaries and the delicate independences that allow us to make sense of our local world. You talked about families, you know, the, the job of making sense of my place in a family and having the right narratives. Is made much easier if the family unit can maintain itself and be enduring over a suitable period of time, say a lifetime. Um, if you take away that, it's very very difficult to know to know what you are going to model. Is it your institution? Is it your employer? Is it your um, is it your church? Is it your political leanings? You know, is 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 it, is it uh, your your geopolitical commitments? All of these things now are challenges to getting the right kind of model, the right kind of explanation. So I think it's a really, a really important question, which you could tie into uh, all the current questions that are vexing people on television every day, you know, be be it wars, be it um, political polarization, be it climate change. I think these are all reflections of things are changing more quickly than we can in terms of in terms of learning stuff.
0: Social climate change. Mm. That's yes. occurred to me while you were speaking. It's like, there's a, it's like climate change is bigger than even just the physical environment. Um, well, can, can I just add, uh, you know, uh, and the two, uh, you, you could never separate these things. So
2: just, I mean, there is real concern um, amongst some um, um, people that the amount of energy that is currently used by um, data factories and indeed by machines that do deep learning that develop your apps, consuming gigawatts um, of power, that that's going to be a really non-trivial demand upon uh, or have a really non-trivial carbon footprint such that in a few years' time, nearly 20% of all the energy we consume will be on electrical communication and data processing.
0: Wow.
1: But it probably will also change where that energy will not come out of nowhere. It will come out of the balance that we use for transportation to some degree, right? Because we don't have to fly to England to be able to have this conversation with you. And I would assume that we're using less energy for the processing power of it than we would otherwise. Which, but I'm not sure how that works when you start to bring in these larger and larger networks. And so I, I, that, that would be an interesting it would be interesting to talk to somebody who's doing the the like energy flow calculation for the future.
0: This changing of the environment is a really fascinating point on our search for a definition of life itself, because life seems to have this ability to not only hold beliefs, uh, in the sense of a model of what the external world is, but it it seems to be able to to change that external world and I wonder if this can help us get closer to understanding life itself because uh i 'm really glad that you you brought that back on 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 track there uh you just made me think of it when you were talking about beliefs going back all the way to the to the most primordial organisms because it seems like it might penetrate the border of life itself even, but life has this distinguishing ability to actually express its intentions and its goals upon the environment. And obviously humans seem to have let that, it's sort of gotten away from us to the extent that we're remodeling the environment so quickly that we can't keep up with it. Um, Do you think that that's an important distinction in the border between living and non-living? And how do beliefs penetrate into the non-living material world as well?
2: Yeah, that's that's, that's a great question. I I, I think the distinction between living and non-living is relatively simple in the sense that living things move um, and in so doing, they have a material effect on um, their environment. So I think the deeper question here is what kinds of environments will support living things that move around? And Usually when one thinks about this, one um, one ends up by acknowledging there has to be a certain kind of self-organization at multiple scales. So for um, your life to exist, well, let's just take a very complicated example. For a particular cell in the hippocampus of my brain to exist, then my brain has to exist. In order for my brain to exist, my body has to exist. In order for my body to exist, my family has to exist. In order for my family to exist, my village has to exist. In order for my village to exist, my Gaia has to exist. My bio- So at every level, you have exactly the same problem. How would you maintain existence? Because at each level, then that level provides a permissive context that enables the expression of life at a faster and smaller scale. And yet at the same time, from the point of view of the level above, it, um, it allows for the organisation to supervene on the faster scale. So noting that there is a profound interdependency between anything at any scale um, where the things we're talking about are generally living things, I think is really important. The, the, one way of expressing that is that any, within any one given scale, the very fact that living things move means that there's a reciprocal coupling between the world out there and me. Um, So um, that means that that reciprocal coupling means that as I'm trying to understand the world, the world is also trying to understand me. Mm -hmm. Uh, That argument leads to the notion of uh, the world learning about you. Uh, My favorite example here is, is the notion of a, an elephant path or a desire path, basically, very simply, a, um, a trail a worn through grass that denotes or signifies a popular shortcut. So this is a little bit, we all can view this as, if you like, the environment is, is learning about the kind of phenotypes and the kind of things that inhabit that, uh, that environment. And a, a very simple example um, of niche construction Um, where it's celebrating this sort of circular causality between us making sense of the world and the world making sense of us. And I think that that argument um, very usefully unpacks when you suddenly realise, or you start to realise, that the environment is not just a collection of footpaths and roads and signs. It actually comprises all sorts of creatures like me, uh, and then we come back to this shared narrative and how to w- make the world a very particular uh, predictable place. So, you know, your 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 comment before about a social network, I think, was um, social climate
0: social climate change.
2: <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, I think that takes on a, you know a real meaning. Um, you know, the, 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 we you know the, the, the our lived worlds nowadays, our, our ecosystems now are um, are. Uh, in a practical and certainly an information theoretic sense they are social they are all about social exchange and information exchange um, so i think that you know it is of course almost obvious that what i say and what i tweet and what i uh, you know the conversations that we're currently having um, has a material impact in the kinds of conversations and tweets that that, uh, that other people are having so you know, mm. I think there's some, you know, it is deep and important an insight that this notion of niche construction and cultural niche construction is an integral part that is both permissive and influenced by this kind of sentient behavior that defines life.
0: Mm. And the collaborative aspect of that defines life is quite interesting too. I've heard it said; it's been phrased a few different times that in terms of entropy and life and how life in a sense maximizes uh, the production of ent- entropy external to itself, which I think is a really fascinating way of looking at it as a system. Like, you know, it's it's physically difficult to separate yourself from the other life forms on the planet and even the the individual uh, ingredients that we must acquire to build our bodies up, right? It's We can't exist without them. We look at the tree across uh, outside the window and we think, okay, well, that's over there. It's separate from me. But if you really drill down, you couldn't survive without the oxygen that it's giving to you. Yeah. And uh, I think this is what makes makes it near impossible to put a line between uh, different life forms and even life forms in their external environment. It's, uh, I mean, I, I hate to make it so... Uh, so I hate, hate to be so pessimistic about the quest for defining life, but it, it's, it's extremely difficult.
1: Well, I, I think that it's a difficulty of defining beginnings. I, for, for a little moment, I had this fantasy where I wanted to find a place where there were no path, no roads. Because I, you know, I've lived my entire life in towns. Uh, something that I do is I do backpacking tours, and so I'll guide people into the mountains and I'll guide people into the back country. But there's always there's always roads, and you come to a place where you leave the road, and then you wander into the dirt, and there's almost always a path, and it's a very well trod path because you're you're following people that have come before you. And so I was obsessed with this idea of I want to go somewhere where there are no paths, and then I started thinking about it and. And like any place where there is any form of will, even down to the bacterial form, there must, there are already paths because there are the the flows of lowest demand that these entities will follow. And so you, I mean, sure, you can get to a place where maybe there's no macroscopic paths built by humans, but there will be paths that are built by animals. Like you were saying, like the elephant that trods through the grass has created a path that follows whatever is easiest, but you can go all the way down to this point where you're like, okay, on this side is non-life and on this side is life. But the thing that you define as life must follow the same path that the thing that was not life also followed. And then something magical must've happened along that path, which suddenly allowed it to kind of tip over into some kind of willful awareness. But where that comes from to me seems just like spontaneous generation, right? It comes from nothing. It all of a sudden is there and there's a spirit and there's something that lives and there's something that dies where there wasn't before. But in that moment where it goes from not to is... is the vital
0: force. <laughs> right?
1: Isn't it magic? I was
0: thinking about vitalism. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, but isn't, but isn't that fundamentally the story? <laughs> Yeah, I,
2: I think so. And, and you know, as you were talking, of course, I'm hearing this through, uh, with the ears of a physicist. And you know, finding that path of least resistance is exactly that uh, principle of least action. So the principle of least action is the physicist's description of finding that path of least resistance right down to the molecular level, through to microbes, through to us, uh, you know, finding the, you know, the shortest way to work or to our favorite coffee shop. All of these are expressions of fundamental principle, a principle of least action, where action is the price you pay for taking that path or that path. So that's absolutely true. And um, in a sense, you know, the free energy principle, which you know you were obliquely referring to before, is just a path of least action. It's just that the action is now scored on the basis of reducing uncertainty. So it's about beliefs, but you know, uh, you, 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 mathematically is the same as the thing you're describing. So, where does vitalism come from? I think it comes. Um, I think you can draw a bright line between things that follow paths of least action, from a ball rolling downhill, which I don't think you would call sentient in any way, uh, as opposed to a um, a rambler, um, you know, walking uphill, which you might call uh, sentient. I think there is. I think there is a, a, a bright line that can be drawn between them, uh, and I think it emerges. Either at a scale, or it might emerge at some point in evolution. Um, 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 perhaps the yes. more important uh, uh, question is, what is it? that uh, I try to remember your nice words. You actually said, "Your they have they have." Uh, you probably won't be remembered. now. but it's intention, intention
0: or, or or goal orientation. Yeah, and
2: um, yeah intention and awareness, um, and um, I, I think. I think well let's just let's just um, focus on the intention word. Um, so I think that that defines the um, the bright line between systems that pursue paths of least resistance, paths of least action um, in accord with all the laws of physics that we know, and systems that are doing exactly the same thing but in uh, in a particular way, and I think it's the the you just have to ask yourself. What kinds of machines, what kinds of belief-based, love-capable meat machines can uh, have intentions? And if you just think about it, all the answers you need are there. First of all, intentions imply a capacity to act. I intend to act. And furthermore, they imply a capacity to, uh, to do something in the future because I have not yet acted. So that tells you something really important about the kinds of systems that could possibly have intentions. They have generative models or models, not just of the future, the consequences of action, but also their action. So they are somehow properly agents because they have actions and they have the ability to countenance and to model the consequences of those actions in the future. And that's quite remarkable. With all of these machines that we are so impressed by uh, in uh, machine learning, or indeed that we use around the house, like thermostats, none of these things actually have models of the future or the consequences of the action. They don't have intentions. So, the very fact you've got intentions tells you you've got to deal with a very special kind of artifact or thing that has a model that is freed from the moment and considered the future. You put that even more simply things that plan. If you've got something that can plan, that's quite a remarkable thing. So to have intentions means that I can uh, indulge myself in planning. And of course, I use the word myself. So now you implicitly also have this sort of notion of a minimal selfhood that's actually planning what I am going to do. So these are very special kinds of things. Uh, And you would expect them to have a particular anatomy and a particular physiology uh, and a particular way of behaving and in particular choosing who, you know, other kinds of things of a similar sort to actually actually engage with. So, yeah, I think there is there is a distinction between the the kind of the the vitalism that you're talking about um, that would be present in you and your pets, um, um, your parents. That would probably not be in a thermostat, and you could argue would not even be in a virus. And and of course, when it comes to sort of bumblebees, I don't think anyone is quite clear whether, whether they they have that kind of vitalism or not. I'm not. You know, uh,
0: that, well, what's really interesting uh, is some people take it to an extreme. I, I'm not sure if you're aware of the work of uh, Michael Levin at Tufts, but we had a wonderful conversation with him where he seemed to be orienting his understanding of cellular behavior to the cellular behavior to the level of intention as well and thinking along the lines of regenerative medicine and cancer biology like well maybe these cells just aren't able to match their intentions to their environments and they're frustrated in a way that that causes them to act in a disease-like fashion um
1: Right, because this is basically what I studied during my PhD, which is bacterial biofilms. And I was really struck by the way that biofilms, it's very hard to differentiate whether they're unicellular aggregates or if they're a multicellular organism. And we like to be able to put them in the bin of, well, a biofilm is an agglomeration of individual bacteria, but... I don't think that's totally accurate because there is a sense of intention in the biofilm where there are different layers and they're doing different things and they're producing goods that are used communally and they're being shunted around the thing. And depending on what biofilms you're in, you can even have long range communication using calcium signaling. And so you very, very quickly get to the point where you're like, well, where does that intentionality begin? And... Levin's work, I think it's a really great example.
0: Yeah, you bring up the specialization feature of complex organisms too, which is quite fascinating. Because again, we have the difficulty of separating where the life form ends and begins in the case of the biofilm, but we also have it in the sense of, hey, you know, with the Gaia theories of the Earth, if the Earth can be treated as a giant organism, well then it must, like all organisms, exist in the context of others like itself right because life seems to organisms seem to exist in concert with others
1: and viruses are a really fascinating part of that because what viruses are is they appear to be these signals that are sent in between life forms that are little software updates that can be catastrophic but can also be a way of sensing your environment and sensing everybody who's around you. And so it seems like there is this signaling and this communication that really connects us to one another on a genetic level, where if you look into the human genome, there's, there's old viruses, there's all these jumping elements, there's all these little pieces that everybody's sort of like, we don't really know what they're doing there, but we know that they're getting sent around. And you occasionally find that there's just huge viruses wandering around people's bodies that aren't really doing anything. I mean, even
0: by saying what they're doing, we're <laughs> ascribing an intentionality to them, which is maybe unjustified.
1: Yeah, but it does seem like there's continuity there on levels that we don't really have a way of talking about yet. But I'm sure that you could mathematically model it if you collected enough data.
2: Yes, yes. No, I hadn't come <laughs> across this notion of viruses communicating sort of uh, genetics. That's fascinating. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, Mike Levin's a friend of mine in collaborator so I sort of uh, discourse with him. Um, you know. several times times a month, Um, and indeed one of the current um, exchanges with colleagues is indeed trying to uh, mathematically model exactly the sort of basal scale-free cognition you're talking about. So I'm using the word basal cognition as, um, uh, it is one of Mike's phrases. Uh, He's probably got a better phrase for it now, but it's this notion that Cognition is not just um, a luxury of your brain and my brain, it's everywhere, every scale. Um, and you also make the point very compellingly that, um, the, you know, that kind of basal cognition, that kind of distributed intelligence of a natural kind, um, has to be um, in play at all different scales. So, you know, the, 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 the um, in order for the virus to transmit it, you actually have to have sort of organisms that can actually, of a macroscopic sort, that can actually trans- transmit them around. So what, what am I... Uh, but the, I think that the, the, there is a, an interesting distinction between that kind of um, biological cognition or basal cognition and the kind of vitalism that we were just talking about. So just wanted to come back to that just to see what it could be. It is certainly true that you can use all the maths that underwrites um, active inference, active sensing, um, cognitive neuroscience, and uh, certain parts of machine learning and apply it directly to extracellular signaling. Um, And It could be electrochemical, it could be through calcium gradients, it could be through box genes, whatever. Um, The math is exactly the same and therefore you can read self-organization at a cellular or a macromolecular um, level in terms of cognitive behaviours. Um, and, you know, my, my favourite example of this is when you look at pathologies um, and you now look at sort of the, the false inferences you get in psychopathology. So I, I'm not sure whether Mike go, you know, sort of uses this as an example, but um, when I first met him, this is one of, the, one of my favourite ideas of his, that, that answer is basically um, cells with delusions. That, you know, that, that, that basically, what makes exactly so the don't know their place, they don't know when to stop, so, so they just falsely infer, Oh, I've got to keep on growing because they've got this delusional belief that that's what they should do. Uh, and no amount of evidence, no amount of uh, chemotherapy or um, sort of autoimmune um, uh, dynamics is going to change their mind and they're going to keep on going. I thought that was beautiful, and it's got lots of other lovely examples where you just use the mechanics of cognitive science, and you just see how they play out at the cellular level right through to possibly, I mean, he doesn't usually deal with that level, but certainly up to the level of of, uh, the biosphere. Uh, These rules apply at all scales, and they can be read as, uh, um, as cognition, as biological intelligence of a very generic sort. I'm completely on board with that I love that idea and you know I look forward to working with Mike and his colleagues um, on that as you know, as long as my career will, will um, support however I don't think that's the kind of vitalism you were talking about so if you just come back to the special uh, the the essence of sentience of the kind that you and I enjoy, it is the ability to plan and you know, if I were to develop that further mathematically, it's planning to resolve uncertainty. So it's both being curious, um, but evincing that curiosity by planning. Now, evolution does not plan. Um, all of the phenomena you were talking about before, in terms of self organization and self programming and morphogenesis and pattern formation, autopoiesis on biofilms that happen to maintain themselves, in, uh, and the, all of these are beautiful examples of systems that have an attracting set and when observed look as if they are aspiring to that attractive set and can be anthropomorphized as intending to be in that state in the future but at no point do they plan they don't choose to do it like this or like that so i think there's some there is actually a fundamental asymmetry um, when it comes to things like you and me that you can't easily transcribe to the weather, to the biosphere, or to cellular organization, or the immune system. None of these other things actually plan into the future, whereas we do. Um, So I would say that that's that's a particularly bright line. Now, I may have misread your vitalism. Uh, I don't think I did because you you were accused of using the intention word. Uh, And for me... Yeah, to have a true intention means, and um, I want the world to be like that in the future. It's not just I behave in a way that I end up in a in a particular in a particular state.
1: Okay, so let's in in the sense of a bacterium that is chemotaxing, it is floating around and it has a belief system about what it wants the world to look like, and it will. Behave in a way that matches its belief about its desires to the external environment that it senses. Yeah. Do you bin that as different than planning for the future?
2: Y- yes, I do. Technically, so if I had to simulate, you know, either a chemotactic um, uh, bacterium or E. coli in, engage in tumbling, you know, uh, behaviour as it explores in a stochastic way. As opposed to something that had to make a choice, I would use a very different generative model. I'd use the same maths, and I'd use the same code, I'd use the same computer, but the, there would be a, um, a structural difference between the kinds of generative models. So I can simulate chemotaxis, phototropic behaviours, I can simulate cell, cell organisation. In fact, Mike Levin and I have a paper, it's about five years old now, called Knowing Your Place, and we simulate uh, eight little cells that find a particular organization to make them into a little structure, a little pattern. At no point did they do any planning. They were just had my beliefs and preferences built into their genetics. So I think intention, well, I read intention really as actually um, um, a statement that I could. I could model the consequences of an intended act as opposed to I simply prefer the world in this state. And if I know what I prefer, then I can simply move to make my preferences come true. Now, that's realizing in a way um, a goal. But for me, there's no intention there. And I mean that in the sense of a thermostat. A thermostat can realize a goal. It can bring your temp- the temperature of your room down to its preferred set point. So this would be the analogy for uh, chemotaxis.
1: But it can't ever get to the point where it wants to change the mood lighting.
2: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or choose between changing the mood lighting and changing the temperature. Yeah, a, as as yeah, you should use that in future conversation. That, that, that's the bright line we're looking for.
1: So where do you, where do you place the bright line of sentience? Do you occupy yourself with where it begins?
2: Um, I personally don't, but this is this is why I think it would be really nice if you can get Brett, this man with the dish brain from Australia, <laughs> on, on your show, because he got shouted at enormously um, for using the word "sentience" when trying to explain to the public and to the journal readers uh, the importance of um, these uh, this behavior, which was described as sentient behavior. We and he were using it in the very simple dictionary sense of sense making, that we take sensation and they have a material effect on um the way that we then behave, hence sentient behavior. But I think that if we want to talk about the sentience of um the you know of Things like you and you and I, and, and, and uh, I would say I'm never quite sure whether to where, where to draw the line. So I, I think certainly dogs and cats would be okay. I'm not, you know, and possibly all the animals that we were describing before in that yeah. idyllic country life, yeah. and that the, you know the, that um, the, to have their kind of sense, sense making that is truly in the service of pursuing intentions and plan, I, you know, I think sentience then would have a, have quite a special meaning. Generally, I don't worry about it. I just mean it's sense-making, so it's inference. Sorry, I should have said that. Inference just is belief-updating. It is just sense-making. It is just sentience of that sort of vanilla deflationary thought, Um, whereas I think the vitalism and the intention and the planning is a different kind of sentience, which which is unique to, uh, you know, a a much smaller number of of things around us.
0: Mm. Yeah, it really strikes me that a lot of this work is aimed at drawing borders between things. And I think that that's in service of being able to handle them and manipulate them and hopefully draw a better future uh, to plan uh, 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 some way of existing more harmoniously with our environment.
1: Yeah, because I, I think you're exactly right, that that's what it's most useful for, because you see a philosophical tendency to erase the borders between things you know everything is one there's a there's the ability to to have a monist view of the world where there is just one thing and i feel like that's technologically intractable because you just if you have one thing, where do you where do you begin? How can you pull on a thread and then effect change if all there is is just the one thing? It, it's very squishy and kind of soft. And so when you get to the point where you're able to say, look, yes, you can have a philosophical debate about the squishiness and the diffuse nature of the border between stuff. But at the end of the day, if you want to be able to build something, if you want to be able to create something, you have to be able to to push things into a box and be like, it's good enough in this box to be able to use it as a module for something else. And I think that this is kind of what you did with the brain imaging, where one person could look at it and be like, well, brains, are they're really different. And we're just never going to be able to compare them and lost cause. But instead, you were like, I don't think that's true. And I think that you can kind of like squish them in ways that you allow it to be uniform across different people and you can say something useful from it. And that's turned out to be true. And so there's great utility in this line drawing and the mathematizing of it for the building of the future. And I hope that you build a future with love in it, Dr. Friston.
2: (laughs) I shall certainly endeavor to do.
1: so. Excellent.
0: Yeah, we've learned so much today. I know you're a very busy man, so I want to let you go. But um, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming by today and and taking the time to speak with us and and discuss these issues, because these are topics that, uh, you know, we're constantly chewing on and constantly bringing before different people. And I think we're getting closer to an understanding of these enormous questions. You know, what is life? What is intelligence? Um, what is the difference between a material and, an, and a concept? And, and I really appreciate what your work has done uh, in service of that understanding.
2: I, think I really enjoyed talking to you. I had so many things to remember. But I think my favorite was the thermostat that changes the mood. mood. <laughs> 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 the way I think about that, I put that into my theorizing. Please do. Please do. Please do.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Friston.
2: Thank you. Then. Bye-bye. bye